Hello, welcome to Medicine Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello, I'm here today in the Lancet offices with um, Richard Horton, who's Editor-in-Chief of the Lancet. Richard, welcome to Medicine Unboxed. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. It's great to be here with you again. (laughs) You've been Editor-in-Chief here since, what, mid-90s? 95? 1995. This is an interesting... um, Well, I'm going to say an interesting journal, but you've described the Lancet as an idea... What does that mean? Yes, it is an idea. It was an idea that was born in the middle of what we now call the Romantic Movement. And it was the sense that the Enlightenment had failed. The idea that knowledge could be applied to the betterment of society was the animating idea of the 17th century. And then we had the... Dickensian workhouses, we have the Industrial Revolution, poverty, children up chimneys, um, debtors' prisons. And that wasn't meant to happen. That wasn't what the Enlightenment was all about. And this young 27-year-old surgeon, Thomas Wackley, uh, in the early part of the 19th century, observed that the medical profession had become one of the iniquitous domains of a very unequal society. And he set out to reform it. And so he came up from the southwest of England to London, trained as a surgeon, and then literally single-handedly used the Lancet as an instrument to take on the medical establishment. He's a, he was a pretty extraordinary figure, this guy, wasn't he? Unbelievable. I mean, there's... You can't imagine anybody like that today emerging from the medical profession. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he, um, his idea, and that's why I always say it's an idea, his idea was that he wanted to unlock knowledge from the profiteering surgeons of the London teaching hospitals uh, and give that knowledge to the masses. I mean, he was, in a sense, the first open access advocate. And... Uh, And he was a radical campaigner. He became a member of parliament. He had incredible run-ins with Edwin Chadwick. He was the one who demanded that those who were in charge of coroner's courts actually had some medical expertise. Um, He was was an incredible figure. I don't think he was easy. Um, I think he was a terrible husband. He was a difficult colleague. Um, He fought with everybody. but my goodness. Do you admire him? Oh, I admire him every day. <clears throat> every day. Every day I wake up. A role I, model? Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think actually, yes, a role model. Although I've, I've never achieved his, um, the heights of his career and never will. Um, I think his, his spirit is definitely something that I, I, I would try to, um, I admire and would love to aspire to. And so tell me about you. You are, you, 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 where, where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? 
family? Well, if I'm not going to give you... The, the long story would take too long. The short story is... Um, which is not terribly relevant, perhaps, but uh, I have a Norwegian father who I never knew. Uh, I, well, I know him now, because in the early 60s, he passed through London, worked in London, had a torrid affair with somebody at work, and above the Fitzrovia pub in Goode Street, one afternoon, um, had a liaison, the product of which is me, he then flew off to some other part of the world, didn't know about me. And then 10, year, 10, year, 10 or 12 years ago, um, I discovered that I was adopted and uh, um, tracked him down, met him, had a DNA test. Um, so having buried one set of parents, I then discovered that I had another second set of parents who'd sprung up in the world. And, uh, and so that's... So basically... So, the story is that uh, I, I, uh, uh, my two birth parents are alive, uh, but I was adopted and brought up in the west of England, and uh, and now have to deal with these strange two people who uh, I don't know terribly well. And that history, I mean, that's a story and story. That's no secret. I find you an incredibly inspiring figure. Does that where you, Richard Horton there? This character, this charismatic, fiery character, which is what I, you know, I think that's a fair description. Um, to take it from me as a writer, that dislocated youth was that was that was that, a, was that formative in some odd way towards who you are now? Yes, very much so. Um, I've always um, I've always felt on the outside. Mm. I've never felt that I've had an origin story that uh, makes me, um, gives me a place of safety. So even when I was growing up, I knew that there was something a little odd. My passport said I was born in London. My parents had never even been to London, so how come I was born in London? Um, so I knew that there was some deception taking place in the family, um, and nobody would ever tell me what it was. And then when I found out that I was adopted, I went home. I was a medical student, actually, and uh, I went home to have this enormously theatrical showdown with my parents and present them the evidence and uh, convict them um, as, as, as rhetorically as I could. Uh, and I walked through the front door and my mother said, I've got, um, I've got colon cancer, and within a year she was dead. And so I was never able to confront them with the truth as I saw it. Um, and, um, and, the, and, the, and the result was that I've, you know, the, the, the sort of reconciliation, so to speak, of the truth with my original family never fully took place. It's interesting, isn't it, when you do <clears throat> grow up in a, an environment where deceptions are present and not spoken about yet, known about the truth, or, or the truth becomes quite important, doesn't it? Or, or similarly, as you grow up, deception becomes very apparent and abhorrent and uncomfortable. You want to push against it. Yes, and so the truth becomes everything. And, and then I don't want to say that what happened when I was a child was an injustice. That's too big a word. But, but, the, but then um, not telling the truth 
um, to powerful people like your parents um, feels very wrong. And then if you feel like you're an outsider because you never knew who your parents were and so you don't really have an origin, which I didn't for, I didn't for 40 years of my life, um, then you feel like, okay, there's this world that um, is full of injustices and who's speaking truth to that those who are responsible for that world. And, and, and that all feeds through into your student life and your life as a young doctor and then... Was that know, the draw to medicine? If you could, I mean, I, we ask these questions, there's never any one draw, is there? But was there a no. particular draw? Um, I, 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 I love science, but I love politics. Yes. And uh, I love writing. Yes. And so I wanted to do something that combined all three. Uh, and I'm sure people think you might think this is sort of extremely, you know, childishly idealistic. But I can remember interrelling around Europe, reading Marx, and and really feeling like, you know, as a 17, 18 year old, that. And I remember reading um, *A Tale of Two Cities* when I was 16, and and really feeling that revolution. Uh, and ideas underpinning revolution was a real possibility that you actually could use ideas to change society. And medicine, at its heart, is a set of um, principles of justice. Uh, there's no other species that exists that constructs this incredible thing called a health system and um, fundamentally cares for we care for each other. I mean, it's a very strange thing. Human beings, we spend all of our time competing and trying to tear each other down. But fundamentally, the human species is built on, uh, I don't mean to sound too prosaic about this, but it's built on love. I mean, we care for each other. We wouldn't have a health system if we didn't fundamentally love one another. Well, the, what flows from that? Then if, if, if love is a principle of justice, care is a principle of justice, then we as doctors should be thinking, surely, should be thinking about how we take that principle and amplify it in the rest of society. We can't, it seems to me, confine those principles just to the clinic, just to uh, the wardrobe, just to our general practice surgery. These are things that underpin everything we do, how we live our lives, every minute of every hour of every day. So for me, love and care is what we do. And what does the implication then is, how does that affect society? I mean, I, what you say is of course true, but equally there's ambivalence and conflict at the heart of that motivation and its motivation set against others. So any civilization or society at its heart may have love for it to be formed at all to be sustained but there are boundaries to that love it's love for a certain group against love for another group how one articulates that love I mean we acknowledge that Dr A, B and C would have very different notions of what good care ought to be it isn't coherent or no it's not and, we're, and, we live, and we live in a very divided societies in multiple ways uh, but I think that if you look at, you know, there's a um, Darwinian laws are um, a, you know, mutation and natural selection. But there's a third Darwinian law in the descent of man, which um, is very powerful and which we don't talk about very much. And that's 
cooperation. Every successful species has been successful, not because they've tried to compete with one another and tear each other apart, but because at profound moments of stress in their evolutionary history, they've cooperated. And I think that's why today we are living in a moment of, in a period of profound stress, existential stress. And we have to somehow look at our self and say, how do we dig ourselves out of this? And it's Darwin's third law. We have to figure out how we can transcend differences and find a spirit of cooperation. It doesn't feel easy right now. Do you think science has an important role to play in that? I think science has a massively important role to play in that because science is a truly epistemic community, by which I mean it's a community that transcends national borders. And we know that in medicine, don't we? Because it doesn't matter where you did a... You, where, where you trained in medicine, any country of the world, you've got the same language, you've got the same experience, you've got the same behaviours, you are part of a community. And that's why I think medicine can be one of the reasons I think medicine can be such a powerful global force. We are a global community, we share a set of values, we share a set of principles, we have common behaviours, we have uh, a dominant philosophy of care and love, and... If we saw that as a profound social force that has a responsibility to hold those with power accountable for the way they are shaping society, then I think we can make a big difference. And if you look, again, if you look at those moments, like in the 19th century, the sanitary movement, and of course, I always come back to Thomas Wackley, but, you know, they made a difference. They changed society. They injected a principle of justice into political debate that simply hadn't been there before. Well, why, you know, where are we now in a moment of ecological collapse, climate emergency? Surely that is our responsibility today. Do we, uh, but do we have to be careful about <clears throat> just almost um, reflexly idealising the scientists? They are as um, open to bias and nefarious winds as any other uh, human being. I just wonder, given your... I mean, you have got a very well-articulated idealism around science and its force in society. Do you feel... So I'm going to ask you briefly about Wakefield and MMR. Mm. Is that disappointing to you that this individual had behaved in a way that was then shown to be not just unethical, but, you know, arguably self-serving? Well, disappointing doesn't even begin to um, summarise my emotions about Andrew Wakefield and that whole story. The way a journal works, um, it's not really um, a scientific process, it's a social process. (laughs) You know, papers are submitted, um, so that's the science in black and white, you send them for peer review. But then then you're in a social process because it's the views, the opinions of the reviewers about a piece of work. The reviews come in and then you have a discussion around a table with 20 of your colleagues. That's a social process. You can't prove that the work is right or wrong. You're making a judgment. And inevitably what you're doing is you're judging 
the work, you're judging the opinions of the reviewers, you're judging the reviewers because you know who they are, and actually ultimately you're judging the people who are the authors of the paper, yes. you're judging the institutions they come from. So there's an awful lot of judgment that comes yes. in here, and you're taking a lot on trust. And 99.9% .9 of the time, your trust is vindicated. And then, in 0.1% of the time, something goes incredibly wrong, and everything explodes, and it all falls apart. And that's what happened with MMR, that we put our trust in a set of people, and we got it, and I will say, we, not we, I made a catastrophic mistake. And that mistake, um, of course, I think about the, uh, the mechanics of, of that. Um, I thought about it many, many times. Fundamentally, I made a misjudgment, not only about the work, but about the person. Yes. And when, you, when that happens, yes, you do. You feel a sense of failure, personal failure, that you could have made such a mistake. You feel a sense of betrayal because you put your trust in a person. Uh, and then ultimately you've got to think, well, okay, what do I learn from that? And what was it? What did you learn? What did, or what should we, any of us, in fact, as a society, learn from that, given his behaviour? Well, there were multiple things that I learned. Um, one, thing was, um, one thing was you can't... Trust only can go so far. There, there's a limit to trust. And that's... A good lesson in life, but it's a sad lesson in life. And it means now that when we have any paper that has not even an extraordinary claim, but any paper, one's first reflection is to doubt. Um, not even to question. To question is good. Scepticism is good. But actually to doubt, in a, to, to, to doubt and think, well, could there be some other... I don't want to say nefarious reason, but is there is there something that's not quite right about this work? Intent. Intent. Um, and and what if this did go wrong? Uh, so you're you're practicing then a much more conservative type of editing, which I can see you have to do in a media age because you don't want to have another MMR happening again. But that's sad because science should be about exploring the boundaries of knowledge and raising crazy hypotheses to see whether they're right or wrong and inviting people to reproduce them or falsify them. But we're not in that time now. It's not easy to do that anymore. Um, and we have lost something as a result. I think we're safer, but I, I regret. And you can draw a straight line between that and a sort of steady ebb of plurality almost, such that it's very hard to throw up plural voices and <clears throat> almost get de debate fermenting. It's extremely hard. I mean, it, another example which was um, in many ways worse than MMR was the letter we published in 2014 on Gaza. Yeah. And, and the reason why that was... That was an open letter in support of um, the terrible things that were happening in Gaza and 
a statement against the actions of Israel. Yes? And it was it was a it was a cry of anguish. Yeah. Written and in rage. A, it was and written in a very emotional way. Yeah. It was a letter. It wasn't a research paper or an edit editorial. It was simply a letter from a group of very concerned uh, individuals. All some, doctors. All doctors yeah. who'd actually worked in the region. Yeah. So they knew what they were talking about. Um, but the consequence of that was extraordinary and and you know there are no there probably a, there's nothing worse in the world than being called called anti-semitic and the journal was labeled anti-semitic i was labeled anti-semitic i received pictures of my photograph next to swastikas and Goebbels and Himmler and Hitler. Um, my daughter was vilified at school by some of her friends because their parents had told their children that my daughter's father was an anti-Semite. People came round to our home um, and literally shouted at us, That knocked on the door and shouted at us that we were anti I mean, it was the most extraordinary few months. Um, simply because we published a letter calling the government of Israel to account for bombing a densely packed area where women and children were dying. Um, that was... We talk about plural voices. No, that was... And one consequence of that was that we were boycotted by um, several very powerful groups in medicine, in particular specialist communities. What's so strange about that is, no, you, you couldn't, you can't have a plural debate about some some issues, and we were boycotted um, because the view was we shouldn't have even allowed this issue to be raised in the pages of a journal. We were politics and medicine don't go together. <clears throat> well, that would be. All. I mean, the interesting thing was the criticism was that you were using the journal as a vehicle for your extreme. This is from Professor Peters, the extreme uh, political views and. You came back, I think, saying the idea that healthcare and politics were separable just didn't stand up. Do, do you see yeah. those as together? I mean, medicine and politics are inextricable. Every time you make a decision about whether you're going to spend money on a hemodialysis unit or a liver transplant program versus social workers or community psychiatric nurses, that's, that's a political decision. How can it not be? So I would say to Mark Peppers, you know, how can you strip politics out of medicine? You absolutely can't do that. Um, it's fundamental to medicine. But for him and for our critics, there's a right politics and a wrong politics. Yes. And that's the, that's, that's the difference. Let's come to this point then about um, <clears throat> politics being stitched in to medical decisions, both on an individual, particular individual level, but certainly... Um, at a societal and national, indeed international level. I, I, and I've often will use this example. I can quite easily be on the train to Cheltenham in my office in the next few hours where I could tap some um, numbers into a computer and get ready access to a lot of money for, say, immunotherapy or costly um, anti-cancer, cytotoxic drugs, completely concurrent with a world that... Um, can't provide oral rehydration, mm. or a country that has no hospice mm. beds, just as you've articulated, mm. meals mm. for families in certain parts of this country. Does that not leave us wondering, you quoted Dickens at the start of this interview, 200 years later, 
how much have we really moved on with progress as understood as equity rather than just fancy, fancy intracellular stuff? Mm. I think as a society, um, you know, there, there, was a, there was an extraordinary poll published just a few days ago which suggested that for a large proportion of the British public, they, were, they saw it as perfectly acceptable that there could be violence against politicians in order to get Brexit done. Um, something has fractured. Something is fracturing in our society. The, the, the post-war consensus that somehow we had to unify society through the institutions we created to serve society. Uh, that contract, social contract, is straining. Uh, maybe it's, it's, it's very close to being broken. And no political party has been able to articulate a philosophy to bring people to a consensus. Now, the, um, my worry is that things are going to have to get worse before they get better. That all, you almost need a catastrophe in order for people to realise the serious predicament that they're in and therefore recognise that we have to work in a cooperative way. But the way. predicament's not universal. I mean, it may be any minute now as the planet warms up. The predicament is not... I am not facing the predicament no. that many are. No, but you're not, and, and, the, and the difficulty is you don't feel connected, and nor do I, to those people who are in that predicament. I, I can come to work here and go home from here, and I might walk past somebody who's homeless, or I might walk past a home where people are living in pretty close to abject poverty, but they're not part of my community, therefore I don't feel... I don't feel that I have a responsibility to them. And that's we've become such an atomized society that that is very troubling to figure out how you how you solve that problem. And th but this is where health, I think, does have a powerful force. We might disagree about differences in politics between us. We might we might not see differences in wealth as something that is an injustice. Somebody might have earned money, more, more money than somebody else. Well, that's just society. But I think most people would say that inequities in health and inequalities in health, that's fundamentally not fair. Well, they would say that, Richard. But <clears throat> I just wonder through our... I mean, we were, we were describing Wackley at the start as being a really unusual character because mm. he saw this and thought, actually, look, this, is, a, this mm. is untenable. Mm. Whereas in, we effectively collude with that world setup in a very narrow conception of what medicine ought to be about. Mm. And, you know, and I get that. I get you know, the fact that we've got busy working lives. In fact, you know, my job is to go to work and look after my patients with mm. cancer. But through those actions and the inactions that they articulate, I'm colluding in a world that perpetuates prolonging life, um, huge expenditure for a very arguably privileged minority. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I do see that. Um, and there is a paradox there that we've created these uh, incredible therapies um, and science has been supremely powerful in doing so. 
um, which in many ways widens the disparity, actually, um, between people rather than narrows the disparity. I do see that. But then if you take the notion of progressively realising an idea, a spirit of equity in society, then certainly within the borders of a single country, Mm. our goal should be, and your goal, my goal, can be, to argue that those who are excluded from access to those treatments should get access to those treatments. I mean, there's nothing wrong with people in our society. I mean, if we're talking about differences between countries, that's a separate question. But within our country, um, it's great that people have access to particular treatments that they might not have had access to before. Um, But you need to make sure that everybody has equal access to those treatments. And my worry is that not everybody does have equal access to those treatments. And not even only access to the treatments, but almost questioning what the goals of medicine are here. To what extent we favour those treatments over, for example, a number of social workers. Yes. Hospice beds, community... Well, yes, the absolutely. The stuff that isn't sexy, no, but absolutely. really is sexy. Well, I think that, you know, the, 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 there's a very fundamental question here about what's the goal of medicine? Is the, is the goal of medicine simply to forever prolong survival? Or is the goal of medicine something deeper than that? What would it be? What would you, let's say you could invent it now, what would it be? Well, for me, I think the, the goal of medicine, um, it's about being able to... Adapt yourself to your particular goals in your particular environment. So it can't just be ever longer life because that's too abstract and not contextualized to the individual. So you, Sam, have a set of, ish- set of interests in your life and you live in a certain family in a certain community. If you were ill... The goal of medicine should be to protect your ability to enjoy your interests in your family, in your community, in your environmental context, to the extent that those can be protected. It's not about longer life. Life is great. But actually, the goal should be about protecting you as a unique self, as a unique person, in the world that you live in. And is this what you mean? You talk about dignity. Yes, yes. Is that, is that, a, is that a, a term that refers to what you're very describing? Very much so, very, very much so. And I think, you know, dignity um, fundamentally is about not humiliating people. Um, and I think one of the things we do sometimes in medicine, if you, if you go to a clinic and you're seeing a doctor... Their sole focus is treatment with the objective of prolonging your life. There's no sense of the meaning of your life, the context of your life, the satisfaction you have in your life, the the relationships you have in your life, the community you live in. And, and of course, I don't want to say, I mean, the poor doctor sitting in, in, in their room, they can't take on all of the world's problems in a single consultation. But not even any of them are taken on, in, 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 in my experience. And, and the upshot of that is that medicine's become so reductive. I mean, it literally is only about the prescription of a tablet with the objective of prolonging life. Now, I just wonder there, look, granted, we've made all sorts of extraordinary strides and we've talked about science as being a galvanising factor on that front. But 
we're at risk, aren't we, by in valorizing science as, as the kind of fundamental source of knowledge in medicine? Because those things you're describing around relationships and meaning for individuals, those sorts of um, those tenets are, are surely better informed by the arts and humanities. Yes, I agree, and I think I think I I am coming to realise the limits of science as a, as a positive force in society because I can see that the practice of scientific medicine, while it is enormously um, powerful um, and brings many benefits, there is something cold at the very heart of it. And I don't know fully yet what it is one needs to do to bring some... Because one can be very glib about this, you know, humanising medicine and, and so on. Yes. But, um, but it's more than that. I think it's, it's, it's somehow respecting the meaning of a human being's life. And how does one introduce the idea of meaning into medicine so that the, 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 the health professional... Um, perhaps more the nurse than the doctor uh, who you're interacting with is taking account of you as that individual because at the moment we don't do that and, and all the science that we publish in The Lancet we don't do that you know it's 15,000 patients randomised in a clinical trial well nobody cares about who the 15,000 patients are in that study it's just 15,000 patients and you add up those on one treatment and those on another treatment and you do a significance test and hey presto you've got your result and we publish the paper and everybody gets excited but what about those individuals? Just tell me that in the last few minutes <clears throat> you've You've not you, you've been unwell recently, and the recipient of healthcare has that changed? Has that when you say you've come to realise some of the um, limits of science, science or scientific medicine? Has your experience informed that change? Very much so. Um, I was diagnosed with stage three melanoma. Uh, and I've had three surgical procedures so far for that. Uh, I had a trial of immunotherapy which failed, and there was a recurrence, and now I'm on uh, some further medical treatment. And I would say, uh, while there have been moments of, uh, of uh, fear and dread and despair um, and isolation, no question about that, um, there have also been moments of extraordinary revelation and uh, insight and um, and a sort of, I think, a, a revivification of my optimism for what medicine can be and should be, but it has to be different. Um, and I definitely have seen the limits of scientific medicine. Every day, you know, I go into the clinic and see my oncologist, who I love dearly. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a three-minute consultation, um, and the oncologist stares at the computer screen and just checks that the blood results I've had two hours before are fine, and then that my left ventricular ejection fraction is okay, and um, Off you go. and then thanks very much. See you in four weeks, and pick your new 
pick your meds up from pharmacy tomorrow. They'll be there for you. And you could get a great sense of relief that everything's fine. But is that medicine? Really? Is that what we went into medicine for? It's not what I went into medicine for. I don't think it's what you went into medicine for. But that's but 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 there's a clinic of fifty yes, people out there who've also got to be seen, and I'm not the only person. And and it's and it's already lunchtime, and they're already an hour and a half behind. People often ask <laughs> us that, and they often say, "Hold on, I'd love to do all this caring stuff, but I've got no time." So then, it's not if it's not the doctor, then then what is it? You know, the. If we take cancer as the as the example, you know, there's this wonderful rhetoric around survivorship, and you know, we've got to have, have these wonderful, um, wonderful uh, pathways for coordinating care between the specialist and the primary care physician, and so on. But God, does that happen? Where are the where are the cancer social workers, the the specialist nurses? I mean, there might be one, but they can't do it all. So. Um, we're going to see this massive increase in so-called cancer survivors over the next 20 or 30 years. Do we have a health system that can deal with that? No, we don't. But getting that balance right, let's take an individual health professional, whatever um, timber, between you know, utilitarian claims on your time and the individual, in the individual here with you is a really tall order, isn't it, in mm. terms of getting that balance right? In the individual, what would your final word? What mm. would your what would your call be now to a junior doctor, first year of their career? How would you how would you ask them to get that balance right? What would you say? Well, the first thing to say is that uh, I would say to any any young person either contemplating medicine or just about embarking on on, on their medical career, um, you are taking part in one of the most profoundly wonderful and privileged careers that you could possibly have chosen. It, it, I still believe that medicine is the most wonderful life to be a part of. The privilege of listening to people talk to you about their lives in ways that they wouldn't even talk to some of their closest friends or family is an unbelievable privilege, unprecedented privilege. Um, I think all I would say about medicine in society today is the idea of health is much more than the conception of health that we currently have. And health has to be something that is individualized, and politicized um, and never particularly important never lose your ability to be shocked by what you see around you I can remember as a first year medical student going into the homes of people in high-rise buildings in Birmingham the floors were soaked in urine the kitchen was full of um, pots and pans that hadn't been washed for weeks, you know, people living in abject poverty. And I remember being so shocked by what because I'd never seen anything like that as a you know, middle-class boy from the West Country. Never lose that, sense, that ability to be shocked because shock is the one thing, is the only thing that can change society. And I see too many people who've gone through medicine 
um, and reach powerful positions who are who no longer shocked and complacent with it who are who yeah who no longer get upset by what they see around them yeah. that that's their new normal and never let yourself be um, never let yourself lose the ability to see the world as it really is uh, and always be optimistic uh, about what medicine can achieve because medicine can be an instrument to achieve equity and a better society. Richard Horton, we're out of time. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Sam. Medicine Unbox keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy it.